Grace Community Church. We're thrilled that you guys are all here to worship with us, whether it's in person or on the live stream. We are grateful for our brothers and sisters to gather together. If you're joining us for the first time, or perhaps this is the first time in a long time, we're excited that you're here and we're engaged in a sermon series where we go verse by verse through books of the Bible, and uh, we're going to continue our journey through the book of Galatians. So if you would please turn to Galatians chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 1. I remind us that this is God's word that it is given to us that we might hear it and receive it by faith. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who is with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slip away or slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that we would see your beauty. Lord, that we would see your power. We would see your wisdom, your faithfulness and goodness. Lord, draw near to us that you might teach, that you might correct, that you might train us. Lord, we are desperate for you, for you to come, for you to move in us and through us, to bring healing and hope, strength and sturdiness. Oh, God of glory, come that we might see you and love what you love. Let go of that which we indulge, forsaking all other things, that you would be the consuming heartbeat of our lives. Come, make the mummies dance, we ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people agree. Do I have any warriors in the room? Any people who have seen a battlefield, stood, flown, observed from the very close and intimate proximity? One of the first things you do as a, as a boy who's becoming a young man is often to think about war and battle, to think about fights here and fights there. One of the things you learn from watching movies that deal with battle and war is that it is hard to launch a simultaneous defense. What do I mean? I mean that it is hard to fight a war if your 
front is not the only place that you are fighting. Pincer move, for those of you who don't know, is coming in from multiple sides to squish in the middle. Simultaneous defense is difficult because you often prepare for a single front. I need my archers here and my cannons there and the cavalry to do this. My infantry to charge here. And often it's adaptable to the environment that you're in. Often you get in these moments and then something turns, something unexpected happens. The great theologian Mike Tyson once said, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. (laughs) A simultaneous defense is difficult because we like to draw all of our attention to one focal point. Well, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing this letter, understands clearly that he is writing a simultaneous defense, a defense and a battle that do not take place on the ground or on the hillside or in the country, a battle that takes place in the human heart, in the human mind. So what is it that the Apostle Paul is defending? I think there are two large defenses that Paul is simultaneously writing about. The first we've spent a lot of time on comes as probably the great theme of the whole first chapter, and that is Paul's apostolic authority and ministry. Paul is having to defend what he says and what he's done based on the authority of Jesus Christ calling him personally into this apostolic ministry. Paul is trying to help the Galatian churches, plural, that he planted, hold fast to the gospel. And these false teachers have infiltrated these churches Notice the military language there, have infiltrated these churches to try and drag them back from the freedom they have in Christ to the slavery of a religion based on man's works, based on man's achievements. Paul's apostolic authority and ministry has been under fire because it's hard to attack Paul's arguments. It's easier to attack his character or his background. The second theme, of course, that Paul is simultaneously defending is not just the authority and legitimacy of his own ministry, but also the very gospel of grace itself. The gospel as we know it and love it and cherish it, sing of it, preach about it, week in and week out from every page of Scripture. The entire epistle of the book of Galatians, this letter is written about the gospel of grace, about the gospel of freedom from the pressures, from the failures, from the pride, from the despair of believing that your relationship with God is contingent on what you have done and not who he is and what he has done. And we've said a lot, in fact, we've done it every week, that the gospel is not about what you do for God. The one true gospel is about what God has done for us. 
This is the greater defense that Paul issues. In fact, I believe he only is exerting his authority and legitimacy for the sake of confirming that the gospel he preaches is true. In fact, there are those in church history who have referred to the book of Galatians as the Magna Carta of Christian liberty, the great charter of Christian liberty. So as we come to this second chapter, we come realizing that these things don't all happen instantly. That unlike a battle that takes place on the battlefield for a day or a week or a month or a season, this is a battleground that has been at war since the Garden of Eden. Men love God, trust him, or we choose our own path in rebellion against his direct command. Why does God look upon his people with favor? Why are his people favored? This is the very center of what Paul is seeking to protect, to defend. In fact, Paul is seeking to return the churches that he helped plant to the foundational apostolic sound doctrine with which it began. But these battles take time. And they come with twists and turns. So when we read here in the opening of chapter 2 that after 14 years, 14 minutes, 14 months, 14 years from the time of Paul's conversion, 14 years from Paul meeting the risen Christ on the Damascus road. He goes again to Jerusalem. This would be 11 years after his first visit. But after these 14 years, Paul goes up again to Jerusalem. And most of what happens in chapter 2 hinges on Paul's interactions and relationship with the Apostle Peter. We're going to spend our time going verse by verse through Galatians, but we're going to also spend time in the book of Acts so that we can understand the foundation and histories from which Paul assumes these churches are familiar because for many of them, they've been on this journey with Paul. And so as we see this language after 14 years, a lot happens in 14 years. Anybody in the room 14 years old? We have some 14-year-olds. So that means from womb to breath today, that's the span of time that Paul's talking about from his alpha point of faith, from the moment of his conversion to the time where he goes to see Peter again. So if you want to know how long that is, look at these ladies and understand that they were still in their mom's womb to cover that distance. Anybody in the room married 14 years? 15, close. Has a lot changed in 14 years in your marriage? I got giggles, I'll go with it. 14 years it's been. And Paul once again goes up in his apostolic authority to Jerusalem. This time he doesn't go alone. He goes with Barnabas and with Titus. See this come to life. Paul says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas 
taking Titus along with me. There are times where the Bible is a puzzle to us. Anybody in the room like puzzles? Yeah, Sydney somewhere is raising her hand emphatically. I don't like puzzles. I'm the weirdo in my family. I get it. I don't like puzzles because I can already see what the puzzle is supposed to create. I've got a picture already. And no, I don't want you to give me a puzzle without a picture. <laughs> I just want to be clear. One of the reasons I love to read books, especially books about God, about theology, is because I want to see things I have not yet pictured. I want to see the connections between things that I have not seen before. But for people who love puzzles, there's a joy, I'm told, in finding the right piece and connecting it in the right place to fill in the right relational angles, widths, all of that. Well, there are times where we're reading in our Bibles and we cannot see how one piece could possibly connect to the other. Now, anybody who's done a puzzle knows that there are times where you try and fit the right piece into the right place, but for whatever reason, you lose confidence that they actually belong together, which I'm told is infuriating. Sometimes when we are studying the Bible, we just think these things can't go together, even though they do. Or sometimes there's mystery involved about how this is talking about the same event that this is, but from two different authors, from two different perspectives. And we have a choice in that minute. In those moments, we have to ask, who's right here? Is God right? Or is my finite brain that fails me often right? Because scripture is perfect. It's true and trustworthy. But there are times where we can't see how these pieces fit together. So, we're going to do a little bit of a history tour throughout this chapter that we might understand the dynamics that give us an insight into how these pieces fit together. In other words, in going to the book of Acts, we will see the picture on the front of the box that helps us see where each piece goes based on its shape and size and color. So sometimes... The book of Acts and Galatians 2 have queried scholars, even baffled people. I want you to hear me say very clearly that there is no conflict here. That all apparent disconnections are not to be trusted because they gloriously go together. We talked and studied last week in chapter 1, near the end, verses 18 and 19, about Paul's first visit to Jerusalem. Let's refresh our memory. Galatians 1.18, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter and remained with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And then Paul takes a solemn oath before God about the truthfulness of what he just said. But do you hear the chronological focus? I was here, and it lasted this long, and then this much time passed, and I went back. And Paul is using the chronology of his timeline the life that he lived to set the stage and explain the platform that not only defends his apostolic authority, but also explains the legitimacy or basis for 
the gospel that he preaches. You can see a reference to this in the conversion of Paul in Acts 9, 26 to 31, but we don't have time for any of that today. Instead, I want us to see that Paul and Barnabas and Titus, an up-and-coming church leader, join together for a purpose. And the purpose we're told for their return to Jerusalem was that he went because of a revelation. This isn't word we use very often today for good reason. But Paul here is saying that his second visit to Jerusalem is because of a particular revelation, a particular prophecy. That's his motivation and circumstance. He goes to Jerusalem with a purpose according to a prophecy that someone gives. And then when he finds himself with Peter and the boys hanging out in Jerusalem, he's going to take advantage of the opportunity and meet with some. Just as he had done 11 years earlier when he visited Jerusalem, he connected with Peter and other leaders including James, Jesus' brother, who wrote the book of James. But when we see this phrase, a revelation, it's another way of saying a prophecy. Well, what prophecy would lead Paul and some friends to caravan all the way to Jerusalem? You guys want to find out what the prophecy was? Turn with me to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, we see a background piece that is primary in Paul's life, but secondary to the early church in what's happening in Jerusalem. Acts 11, 27 to 30. We read, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Holy Spirit. It's another way of talking about prophecy. That there would be a great famine over all the world. And for historical footnote purposes, Luke, as he's writing this, records this took place in the days of Claudius. So here's Luke as he's writing scripture making note of who the Roman emperor was. He is setting the historical truth of this experience into a larger framework that everybody in this part of the world would understand and remember. These are called historical footnotes, meaning Anybody who had lived through this famine remembers this famine and remembers who the emperor was. You guys think you're going to forget who the president was during COVID? It's a universal touch point, right? So if we want to talk about what happened in the last three years in this country and in many ways around the world, you have this historical footnote. COVID, leaders, politics, policies, I don't care what your opinion is in this moment. Our focus is to understand the relationship of how a historian would record and intertwine these narratives. So Agabus predicts, predicts in his prophetic role that there's going to be a great famine. And it's going to take place all over the known world. And it does. Because they can look back on it. They can know who's in power. Who made what policies. So because of Agabus's warning, they gathered together a huge gift offering. A gift offering that would be disseminated in Jerusalem because, and this is very important, y'all, 
This is very important. Because famine hurts the poor the most. Financial difficulty, when shared broadly in a society, is felt the hardest by those with the, la- the least, okay? So it is because of their trust that God speaks through the men that he's put in place to do that, that they, before the famine hit, gather together the resources that are necessary to preserve and protect the poor in the church in Jerusalem. Isn't that awesome? This is a hallmark of Christian living from generation to generation. Now, I didn't plan to give this on the day we open up the Thrive Food Drive, but I take it as providence, yes? The poor, when squeezed, are hurt the most and become the most vulnerable. In fact, in the history of the early church, there was a phrase that pops up. Great famine leads to great destitution. Those who are poor before the famine become destitute soon into a famine. They're the first to go. So when we think about what's happening here and the reason that Paul will be sent to Jerusalem, it's not to get info from Pete. It's not to hang out with his boys at a theological conference. It's to do the missional work of caring for the least of these, as their Lord has taught them to do. So we read in 29 of of Acts chapter 11, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so. How did they do so, you might ask? Thank you for asking. They do so by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Paul. That's why. Now, that's Luke's account informed by Peter and the folks in Jerusalem years later. But how does Paul remember it? How does he see it? Well, he says after 14 years, he goes up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation. Whose revelation? Agabus's. Agabus's revelation. And in this overlapping apostolic age, God has all his peeps on duty. And they're all engaging and interacting according to the ministry that they in particular have been called to. Well, Paul is still a relative outsider to the churches of Judea, to the church in Jerusalem. Which is hilarious to me because he's a Jew of Jews. Tribe of Benjamin, eighth-day circumcised. I mean, this guy was the ultimate insider in Jerusalem. And he switched teams by God's grace. So Paul, in carrying the money and being trustworthy with it, brings the resources to Jerusalem. And while he's there, hey, anybody seen Peter? Hey, can I, can I get coffee with you, Pete? I, I have some questions. I want to work through some stuff. 14 years of ministry, I can assure you, is a very long time. The days are long. The weeks, they're long. The years, them, they're long too. It's joy. It's suffering. It's God's glory. So Paul, seizing the opportunity afforded him by this ministry of mercy, 
quote, sets before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. If we're going to understand this, let's remember the timeline. It's about A.D. 32, Paul's converted, soon after the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and the Pentecost. In A.D. 34, parts of three years later, Paul goes for his first apostolic visit. In A.D. roughly 45, and again, hold all your timelines here a little bit loosely, it is easier to order them than it is to specifically nail them and pin them down. But go with me on AD 45 and understand that this is Paul's second apostolic visit to Jerusalem. So what is he using this opportunity to do? We get this phrase, quote, set before them, close quote. Have you ever served dinner to someone? Let me rephrase. Have you ever served dinner to someone three years old and older? Because serving toddlers is not the same thing. Do you know the moment and the smile when you finally put those chicky nuggets on the tray in front of them? Do you know the gasp that happens in the fancy restaurant when you're having that special dinner and they finally put that overpriced, though gloriously presented, dinner tray in front of you. And you look down and you see that giant steak and you say in your heart, yes. <laughs> I just want to make sure you're with me. So in those moments, we are doing what we know to be setting before, yes? The waiter, the waitress, they set before you the meal. We also do this weird thing culturally where if you have a bottle of wine, and we're Presbyterians here so we can have wine, when they do that, they will pour the tiniest little amount in the glass. You know this moment? And you look at it, and the first time it happens, and you're not prepared for it, let me prepare you, they want you to smell it and spin it somehow and look at it and look for legs on liquid, okay? And uh, then you taste it to make sure that it tastes like what you wanted to order. And then after you approve, they fill it up, serve everyone. That is the setting before you. It is displaying it for your inspection, or examination, how many of you have spent time in the military? Inspections were your favorite moments, right? I didn't get thunderous woo. Inspections can often be fearful. Have you ever known that you mostly cleaned your room when mom said? And you're like, yes, look right over here. The closet's fine, you don't have to look there. And the monsters live under my bed, so you don't want to check there either. You with me? Paul goes and sets before them what? In fact, if you're starting to learn and read and study the Bible by yourself, there's a handful of really helpful questions to get you into the passage. If you hang out with me during our Connect on Friday nights, you will learn quickly that I am going to ask you these very obvious and simple, though often super helpful, questions. Now, they're as sophisticated as who, um, what, where, when, how, and eventually we graduate to the infamous why. So what did he do? He set before them. Who's the them? Let's go back to Galatians. 
Who is this them? I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential. Does Paul pick a fight with those who have no opportunity to help? No opportunity to confirm, to reject. He doesn't do this publicly. In other words, he's not having a clickbait typing fest. Instead, he sets into a private context. That's the where. Where does this happen? It's privately. In fact, the privately helps us understand that Paul's not talking here about the apostolic council that takes place in Jerusalem in Acts 15. In fact, this helps us understand that the entire letter of Galatians is written before the apostolic council in Acts 15. Because Acts 11 and 12 and 13 will line up in the chronology that Paul is presenting. So, what does he do? He sets it before them. Who's the them? The them is essentially Peter and James and John and the other James, the Lord's brother. I talked about that steak being served. You're welcome. You got a half hour left. You can make it. What is that Peter is presented with, that James is presented with? What inspection are they asked to examine? It's Paul's message. It's his gospel. It's his understanding and persuading presentation of the gospel. That's the ultimate what happening in this moment. So here's Paul 14 years into preaching, 14 years of getting thrown out of synagogues and doing ministry in the marketplace or the home. And after 14 years of preaching the same thing, the weariness sets in. I'm not saying the doubts set in. Do you think Paul doubts? Pretty sure that experience on the Damascus Road kicks all doubts aside. Ananias coming from nowhere right after Paul converts to lay hands on him and to commission him with a word from the Lord. Pretty sure that's unforgettable. My hope is that all of you in Christ can remember significant moments where you were formed and shaped and fashioned. You went to that conference, you heard that speaker, you had this conversation, you read that book of the Bible, and those things serve as Ebenezer's for you in your life of God's faithfulness. And in that process, you come to present yourself over and over and over with this gospel that you adore with this transforming message of salvation, not based on what I do or what I want, but solely based on who Jesus is and what he has done. And the vindication of all of it, that glorious Easter morning. Well, here's Paul, and he's gonna lay out his gospel to the Gentiles. And he's going to say, what's wrong here? What's off? What doesn't belong? What, what have I been misguided in? And I think this conversation was probably hilarious for Peter. Because Peter probably was intimidated at least, if not kind of, you know, irritable towards the guys like Paul. Remember, these are 3D characters. These are real people. How many of you loved if you weren't the smart kid in the class? That kid who sits right up front and raises their hand to every question. You can tell who I was in that classroom.
it's easy to have conflict there, right? Here's Paul, the great Jew, growing up with the Jews, in the Jews, among the Jews, achieving over all the Jews. What's Peter do for a living? Yeah, he's a fisherman. I'm not saying there aren't complexities to fishing. If you go with a real fisherman, Tyler, if you have openings, if you don't know, Tyler, he loves fishing. He fishes different than I do, right? Why? Because of experience and passion and knowledge and equipment and all those things. So imagine if I was in charge of the fishing trip when Tyler's next door. That's not how I would do it, right? I go, T, you're the man. You set it up. You tell us what we need. You help us figure it out. We'll pay for it. And it would be a blast, right? But if the non-fisherman sets the agenda, it's only by God's grace that that would be a good trip, yes? Here's Peter, the everyday ordinary dude. Here's Paul, the extraordinary thinker and server, the fierce debater, and who goes to which party? It's the inversion of everything that the world would choose. Paul, you go to the Jews because you know Judaism better than everybody. And Pete, you can go to the Gentiles because they're going to have fewer questions. They're going to begin shallower than the others. But God inverts it. Paul goes to the uncircumcised. And Pete, because he's been with Jesus... Because he knows what betrayal and denial and fear do to the heart of someone who loves God, he goes to the Jews to weed out Phariseeism, the outsider to the insider in both instances. I think there's something beautiful there. But Paul lays out, sets before Peter his gospel. And then we get the why. The why is actually interpreted for us. Anytime you get authorial interpretation, rejoice in your heart because you don't have to wonder what this means. You're given it. So here's the why. Why? Why did he do this? He did it to make sure. Hang on. The Apostle Paul needs confirmation. The mighty Apostle Paul, the guy who in a few years is going to write Romans, a book so heavy and weighty it would take us 10 years to go through it. And then I'd finish and want to start over. It'd be a whole new church by that point. Can you imagine what it is like for the weariness of ministry to bring Paul to a place where he's like, I'm right, right? I mean, right? Yeah, right. Well, I'm pulling out of Deuteronomy 21, and I see Deuteronomy 6 here, and it's really what's happening here in Leviticus 16. And, and if we pull that with this theme and that thread, and the suffering servant goes with the mighty king, and they get united in Christ, and there's all these threads and all these things and all these puzzle pieces, and they're all getting assembled, and Paul is presenting that to Peter, and I'm betting Peter's taking notes. I bet Paul knows his Bible better than Peter knows his Bible. But notice, that doesn't forfeit either one of them from ministry. It is a common trope among pastors, but it is true. That God doesn't always call the equipped. But he always equips those he's called. That's a definitional reality in the gospel. So here's Paul presenting before Peter and a handful of others so that he can have comfort and confirmation that he is not running his race in vain. Think of it this way. 
even after all these years of being an apostle, Paul still has nothing to hide. Full inspection, full examination. If you set it before them, you expect them to lick up the plate afterwards. He's got nothing to hide. And certainly, the focus here is of a unity of message. Paul's been out in the wilderness with the wild people as Peter's been forced to be stuck in Jerusalem and the surrounding lands doing missional work. But the content is the same. The truth is the same. The accuracy and precision of the doctrine is the same. Why? Because we have one Lord, one baptism, one spirit for the whole church. There should always be cooperation and partnership as long as we are all preaching the same gospel, the one true gospel. And so here's Paul spreading it out for their examination. And we're told that they added nothing to his message. We're going to do that in the weeks to come. So don't get nervous. We're on pace. Today's just part one of these 10 verses. You're welcome. Again, we see in verse six that Paul's having this conversation with those who are influential, but that they added nothing to his gospel. You don't become a Christian by becoming a Jew. You get freed from the misunderstandings doctrinally of Judaism, in becoming a Christian. So we see Paul later on in the last letter we have, he writes to Timothy, it's the second of the letters that we have, and he says this, 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, follow, he commands, the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, meaning according to the sacred ministry of the Holy Spirit, who dwells within each believer, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What was given to them? The gospel. The gospel. God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixes it. And one day God will remake it in perfection. So do we have to be careful about the message? Do we have to make sure that the message is true and right and accurate with nothing added and nothing lost? Yes! But we also must heed the advice and insight of the great Presbyterian Samuel Rutherford who says this. He says, it is easier to be sound and orthodox than to be godly. It is easier to be sound and orthodox than it is to be godly. Part of what Paul wants in this time of examination and inspection is the great union of orthodox theology with orthodox or orthopraxis right action. Right belief must be married to right action. And when that happens, the praise of God continues and explodes and furthers. As the people of God, we need to proclaim the gospel, that orthodox message. The good news must be presented biblically and theologically in all its richness while also living lives that confirm the truth of that message. The church has, from the time of Paul, going forward, always to preserve both. And you will see Christian traditions who value orthodoxy, right belief, and right practice. Man, we'll get to that. Or you can say, oh, this is the great liberality of the 1900s. Let's pursue 
right action regardless of or not being supported by this right thinking, this right belief. These two should never be divorced from each other. I close with this from John Frame. If the biblical picture of the church tells us anything at all, there has got to be a way for us to reach our culture dynamically, not by compromising our doctrine, but by being especially consistent with it, not playing it down, but pressing it hard, not holding it only theoretically, but living it out in the fullest way possible. That is God's way. Amen? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we confess that there are times that we do not take as seriously as we should the truthfulness and power of your gospel. Father, forgive us for thinking that there are things in the world that are greater to have than fellowship with you. So come, God, and draw near. Come and rebuke and convict of us of our sin that we might know clearly what to forsake and what to embrace. And then guide us in the way forward, releasing the sin and shame that you purchased so long ago. The redemption that you secured before we even had need of it. And strengthen and renew us for the battlegrounds of everyday life. May we really press our theology, not to win arguments, but for the missional work done in the greatest of all mission fields, the human heart. Begin with us and use us as your missionaries and ambassadors heralds of the one true gospel. Would you do it for Christ's sake and our benefit? And all God's people agree.